This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome to the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice podcast, your bi-weekly source of news, views and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS, who has had no influence on the content or choice of faculty. I'm Emma Phillips, and today we're rounding off this topic of common comorbidities with a discussion of complex case studies. In real-world clinical practice, it often isn't as simple as managing type 2 diabetes alone, or even diabetes plus one comorbidity. So when multiple conditions present together, how should clinicians prioritise targets, treatments and management strategies? Today I'm joined by Dr Kevin Fernando, who's a GP partner near Edinburgh and also Scottish lead for the Primary Care Diabetes Society, to explore three fictional case studies on how to manage more complex clinical presentations. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Fernando. So today's first case is Mr. B, who's a 58-year-old male diagnosed with type 2 diabetes four years ago, currently managed through metformin alone. He's classified as obese with a BMI of 32.7 and has not succeeded in achieving significant weight loss despite increased weekly exercise and recommendations on dietary intake. His recent blood tests identified increased AST-ALT and subsequent investigations led to a diagnosis of MAFLD with a number of high risk factors for NASH. So first question, should this patient be referred to a hepatologist for biopsy in your opinion? Well, this 58 year old gentleman has an elevated AST-ALT ratio. So he is at increased risk of progressive liver disease and NAFLD, NASH, uh, and even perhaps a risk of hepatocellular carcinoma. So absolutely, I think he should be known to our secondary care hepatology colleagues. Maybe not necessarily a biopsy straight away. We have a number of non-invasive ways to assess fibrosis of the liver these days. Uh, An ELF test is a blood test, enhanced liver fibrosis blood test that can also help quantify the degree of liver fibrosis. Uh, and also uh, we have various ultrasound based uh, uh, modalities now that can also help uh, uh, quantify degree of, of liver fibrosis modalities such as fibroscan. Thank you. And secondly, given the comorbid obesity and difficulty achieving weight loss through first line methods, should he also be referred for possible bariatric surgery? Certainly with uh, his type 2 diabetes um, and his comorbid obesity and uh, NAFLD, bariatric surgery is is an option, but perhaps there are other uh, avenues we can explore too. We have an increasing number of medications uh, 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 for us in primary care to help facilitate weight loss for uh, people like this gentleman. The the GLP-1 analogues uh, have secondary benefits for weight loss, and we have certain GLP-1 products also licensed specifically uh, for weight loss now as well. SGLT2 inhibitors can also facilitate weight loss as as well. So I think perhaps exploring uh, other uh, pharmacological options might be a good idea first uh, before considering bariatric surgery. But we have good evidence base and involving evidence base for bariatric surgery. But of course. Any sort of surgery is not without its potential harms in terms of the anaesthetic risk and also surgical complications itself. 
And of course, the sequelae of bariatric surgery mustn't be underestimated either. Uh, individuals do have to significantly change their, their lifestyle in, in terms of what food and types of food they eat and also the nutritional supplementation. So absolutely, it is an option, but I would perhaps explore other pharmacological uh, options before bariatric surgery. Wonderful. And assuming Mr. B does indeed have NASH, how should this influence his current diabetes treatment plan? So, you know, assuming that uh, this gentleman does have NASH, it's a very interesting area, actually, NASH and diabetes. We've been talking a lot about cardiology and diabetes and then renal and diabetes. But uh, very soon, I think we're going to be talking a lot about the liver and diabetes and that relationship between NAFLD, NASH and type 2 diabetes. Because actually, we've got quite an interesting and involving evidence base that certain diabetes therapy classes can actually help improve uh, findings in NASH. So both some of the pathological, histological findings in NASH, but also the abnormal metabolic factors such as the abnormal LFTs and dyslipidemia. So in fact, first of all, it's good old fashioned pyoglitazone, one of the thiazolidine diodes. We've been using that for many, many years, of course. Um, and uh, a few years ago, there was a high quality study that demonstrated pyoglitazone uh, for those with NASH and, and NAFLD actually helped uh, regress some of those histological findings, the fibrotic findings we see um, in uh, NAFLD, and also helped improve LFTs too. We also have uh, an emerging evidence base for the GLP-1 analogs as well uh, for beneficial effects uh, in, in, in NAFLD and NASH. And, and not quite as large as the GLP-1 evidence base, but still a small but evolving evidence base too for the SGLT-2 inhibitors as well. So uh, absolutely, I'd be looking at uh, introducing you know, one or even a, a couple of these in combination drug classes, not just to help improve and manage his, his diabetes and facilitate some weight loss, but also to perhaps improve some of those metabolic parameters, uh, abnormal metabolic parameters associated with the, the NAFLD or NASH. Thank you. So moving on to our second case, this is Ms N, who's a 72-year-old female diagnosed with type 2 diabetes 12 years before and is currently meeting her HbA1c target of 53 millimoles per mole through metformin plus a DPP-4 inhibitor. And two years ago, her routine blood tests identified a decline in EGFR. She was subsequently diagnosed with stage 3A chronic kidney disease with an EGFR of 52 millilitres per minute. In the past few months, however, she's noticed onset of dyspnea and abnormal swelling of the ankles, leading to clinical investigations that confirmed heart failure with reduced ejection fraction with an NYHA classification of 2, meaning she's able to perform everyday activities but is becoming fatigued on exertion. So considering both the chronic kidney disease and heart failure, should this patient's diabetes medications be changed? And if so, is this a case of adding an agent on top or substituting the DPP-4 inhibitor? Yeah, so this lady has two significant comorbidities, chronic kidney disease and heart failure. So we have, a, we have clear guidance from the joint uh, ADA, American Diabetes Association and EASD, European Association for the Study of Diabetes consensus statement suggesting for someone like this lady, I should preferentially consider the use of an SGLT2 inhibitor with proven CKD and heart failure benefits. Um, so absolutely, I would be looking to, to change uh, this lady's uh, diabetic medicine regimen to include an SGLT2 inhibitor. 
In terms of whether or not to continue the DPP4 inhibitor, I personally would uh, stop it. Uh, I don't think it's adding any value to this uh, current uh, her, her current drug regimen. Her HbA1c is uh, you know, essentially to target already, uh, and I appreciate stopping the DPP4 might slightly deteriorate the uh, the HbA1c, but the SGLT2 itself, aside from its CKD and heart failure properties, of course, is a glucose-lowering drug too. So, and also, I'd like to, to minimize polypharmacy here as well. So, I would add in an SGLT2 inhibitor and stop the DPP4 inhibitor. Wonderful. Thank you. And given the patient's comorbidities, are there any other management adaptations that you think should be considered in this case? So this lady unfortunately has a diagnosis of a type 2 diabetes and uh, both CKD and heart failure. She is at high risk of a future cardiovascular event, perhaps a fatal cardiovascular event, uh, either driven by a CKD. CKD is an independent risk factor for, for uh, cardiovascular disease or driven by a heart failure. Uh, if she's hospitalized, if she has a first hospitalization with that heart failure, her one-year mortality jumps to around 30 to 40 percent. So absolutely, I would want to uh, involve my renal and my cardiology colleagues in this lady's ongoing management. But of course, things I can do in primary care are to get the basics right. So for a heart failure, I want to establish her on uh, beta blockers, on ACE inhibitors, spironolactone as appropriate, uh, even dr newer drug classes such as Sucupidrol, Valsartan as well. Um, I'd want to get her to monitor her weight regularly, looking for any shift in her, in, in her, in her weight that might suggest fluid accumulation uh, and might also drive a change in her ongoing management. From a CKD point of view, um, well, the, the ACE inhibitor or OERB, I would have started for the heart failure. So that, of course, will also hopefully help uh, reduce the progression of a CKD um, as well. And I'd also want to optimize the cardiovascular risk factors, uh, again, to try and reduce that progression of uh, renal disease. So unfortunately, this lady is at high risk of a potentially fatal subsequent cardiovascular event. But there's a lot we can do in primary care to optimize the cardiovascular risk factors and try to reduce progression of a, of a, a renal disease. Things like statins. I haven't mentioned statins. I, of course, I'd want to consider a statin as well for this lady. So yes, a number of management adaptations that should be considered. But given our high risk, I think it would be wise to involve our renal and cardiology colleagues too. So you've just mentioned involving renal and cardiology colleagues, but do you have any advice on how specifically primary care providers should be involved in cases like this? So uh, a, a lady like this with both heart failure and CKD needs to be under regular recall. Um, I need to be seeing these, this lady, uh, certainly initially quite regularly to optimize all her medications to titrate up those beta blocker doses, those ACE inhibitor doses, to look uh, for any significant weight change suggesting fluid overload. So yeah, those, initial, uh, those initial few months or even perhaps longer after diagnosis, I would expect you'd be seeing myself, my practice nurse, very regularly. And, and again, as I said, I would get in touch with my local cardiology and renal teams too. But as time progresses, as a, a CKD and heart failure stabilizes, then of course, <clears throat> we can take our foot off the pedal in terms of the regular recall in the practice. And of course, with, with good education, um, this lady can try and self-manage aspects of her own heart failure and CKD management. Wonderful. So moving on to our third case of the day, 
This is Ms M, who's a 52-year-old female who's only recently been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. She's obese with a BMI of 28.9 and attended a GP appointment complaining of shortness of breath and chest pain upon climbing flights of stairs that didn't normally affect her. Subsequent investigations into this apparent angina revealed the presence of coronary artery disease and additional follow-up blood tests also identified type 2 diabetes with a glycated haemoglobin of 68 millimoles per mole. So considering the simultaneous diagnosis of diabetes and cardiovascular disease, what initial pharmacological treatment do you think should be offered to treat Ms M's hyperglycemia? Well, this young lady, she's only 52, unfortunately now is at high risk of a future and perhaps fatal cardiovascular event. Despite all the hard work we do in primary care, cardiovascular disease remains the leading cause of death in, in people like this lady. So absolutely, I would take a steer from that, that uh, joint American and European consensus statement again, which clearly tells me uh, in anyone with type 2 diabetes and coexisting cardiovascular disease, particularly atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease like this lady has, I should preferentially consider a GLP-1 receptor agonist with proven atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease benefit. So that certainly would be uh, my initial choice of pharmacological treatment for, for this lady. So I, I, I would be very, very much looking at optimizing also her, her other cardiovascular risk factors, looking at things such as her blood pressure, lipid profile. But in terms of uh, hyperglycemia, uh, absolutely, I would be starting a GLP-1 receptor agonist with proven atherosclerotic cardiovascular benefits. Thank you. And secondly, what individualized target would you offer to Ms. M, considering she's relatively young, but does have this diagnosis of established cardiovascular disease? So she, she, she's developed cardiovascular disease at a very young age, just 52. So I suppose initially what I'd be looking at is maybe exclu excluding things like familial hypercholesterolemia. I'd want to explore that family history. I might even consider referring her to uh, one of my cardiology colleagues to exclude more unusual underlying lipid or other inherited disorders. But certainly in, in, in terms of her ongoing HbA1c target, she's got everything to gain, hasn't she, from a tight glycemic target to minimize her future risk of both microvascular complications of diabetes, the, uh, the retinopathy, uh, the neuropathy, but also, of course, the macrovascular complications. She already has atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. So once again, she's at high risk of a, uh, of a recurrent cardiovascular event. So for her, I would be aiming for an HbA1c of 48 millimoles per mole or 6.5% uh, because uh, this would give her the best chance of minimizing these future micro and macrovascular risks. So a current HbA1c is 68 millimoles per mole. So some way to come down. But if I were starting that GLP-1 receptor agonist, these are potent agents as a class. So I would hope uh, we could get uh, some, somewhat down towards that target, even with that uh, one agent. Thank you. And finally, as with the second case, what role should a primary care physician play in the overall management of a patient like Ms M? So once again, for, uh, for a young lady like this, primary care plays a key role in, in keeping uh, this lady under regular recall optimizing those cardiovascular risk factors. So not just looking at the type two diabetes, but looking at hypertension, you know, presence of any uh, hypertension, 
looking at uh, any dyslipidemic profiles as well. Uh, of course, counseling her to help stop smoking if she is a smoker, and also supporting her from the weight perspective uh, as well. The GLP-1 that I'm planning to start hopefully will help facilitate some weight loss, but I would certainly consider referring her to any local weight management services uh, as well. But as mentioned, she is at high risk of a recurrent cardiovascular event. So I would want to involve my cardiology colleagues as well. So absolutely a pivotal role by the primary care physician looking after this lady, but very much the management of type two diabetes and his comorbidities is a team approach. So it does require, require an MDT, a multidisciplinary team uh, uh, approach. So regular recall, involve my uh, secondary care colleagues as appropriate. And of course, educate uh, this lady as well. The first step of healthcare is self-care. So reinforce that all important life, lifestyle advice as well. To, so she can uh, hopefully mitigate her future ca cardiovascular risks too. Great, thank you. And I suppose a bonus question really, do you just have any final comments or advice um, to our listeners on how they should treat these kinds of multi-morbidity situations? No, but absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> So uh, multi-morbidity multi is now the norm. You know, more of my patients have two conditions than one condition, and often one of those conditions is type 2 diabetes. So increasingly rare to see type 2 diabetes alone. And certainly that's the key message I took away from that joint American-European consensus uh, statement. Yes, of course, look at the diabetes and the glucose, but also look for the presence of significant comorbidities, such as obesity, such as atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, such as heart failure, and such as CKD, and use the presence of these comorbidities to guide onward uh, anti-diabetic treatment, um, and also uh, optimization of cardiovascular risk factors. Because again, despite all the good work we do in primary and, and secondary care, cardiovascular disease does remain the leading cause of death in people living with uh, type 2 diabetes. This brings us to the end of today's time and the end of this second season. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to us over the last year. If there was a particular topic or episode that was your favourite, or if there are any topics you'd like us to cover in the next season, you can let us know by sending us a tweet at DKI Practice or by emailing us at contact at knowledgeandpractice.eu. Thanks again for joining us and we look forward to bringing you season three very soon.